Hello and welcome to Holmes, Borden, and the Watson Papers. This is your host, Chris Dilworth. Thanks for joining me. Today we're going to talk about Robinson's closing argument. Robinson was the celebrity lawyer who headed the defense team. He'd been a three-term governor in Massachusetts. He had a lot of personality. He was well-known and well-liked, and he had a very folksy manner. I think he was a pretty good lawyer. He did a good job cross-examining the government's witnesses, and I would say he did a fine closing argument. It ran 77 pages in the transcript. It lasted five or six hours, and at most he used notes. I assume he had notes. He did not read this off of a prepared text, and he was remarkably articulate. Obviously, he talked about the presumption of innocence and the burden of proof. Every defense attorney does that. That's standard stuff. Let me talk about the specific points he made with regard to the evidence, because I think it's important for you to know his theory of the case. It helps us as we segue into the Holmes material, and we'll get to Knowlton's theories and Knowlton's closing argument in the next episode. But let's talk about Robinson's major points. One of the first things he says is that it appears that whoever killed Mr. and Mrs. Borden was pretty familiar with the use of a hatchet. He said this was not an untrained, unfamiliar hand that struck these blows. They were pretty well placed. They were, for the most part, directed to a limited small area in the back of Mrs. Borden's skull and on the side of Mr. Borden's face. He said they were not struck by someone who was weak or timid or unfamiliar with the use of a hatchet. He went on to point out that the government had not produced a single shred of evidence that Lizzie had ever handled a hatchet. Nothing. No witnesses who said they had ever seen her use a hatchet. No statements by Lizzie that she had ever used a hatchet. No evidence she had ever owned a hatchet, possessed a hatchet, or bought a hatchet. And he said, this is not consistent with her. Look at her. Look at the life she's led. Look at her physical size. This just doesn't make sense. I don't know whether he wanted the jury to go back into the jury room and kind of run through their own heads a scenario where Lizzie came in and attacked her stepmother with a hatchet. But if you think about it, if you put yourself in the shoes of the jury, wouldn't you think it was a bit implausible for Lizzie, who was five foot three, 130 pounds, to go into a confined space and attack someone who was the same height but outweighed her by 70 or 80 pounds? If you miss, if you whiff, if your first blow does not cause any serious damage, you've got someone who is more than 50% heavier than you within reach who could easily grab you, force you to the floor, and hold you down while screaming for help. It was pretty risky for Lizzie to go in unless she was really comfortable using a hatchet, unless she had a lot of confidence in her ability to land a blow cleanly. It was pretty risky for her to go in and tangle with someone the size of her stepmother. And even though her stepmother was in her 60s, she was in reasonably good shape. The autopsy said there were no major health issues. She was pretty active. She would go out and about town. She would walk around town. She did the food shopping. She was clearly able to get up and down stairs without any major problems. And if you've ever tangled, had a run-in with somebody who weighs 50% more than you do, you know that that person has a huge advantage if you're grappling. I can also say that based on my experience using a hatchet, a hatchet is harder to use than you would think. It's an unwieldy instrument. It's really heavy on one end. It's heavier than a hammer. 
A hammer, relatively speaking, is a much lighter instrument, I think, than a hatchet. The metal blade on a hatchet weighs probably twice what the metal part of a hammer weighs. And I'm talking about implements that have wooden handles. I'm not talking about a hammer that has a steel shaft. And it's just harder to lift, it's harder to control, it's harder to manage than a hammer is. This is another thing to consider. If Lizzie's going in there and she chooses to use a hatchet as opposed to a knife, as opposed to a hammer, one of the problems is that if there is a struggle over the hatchet, if Mrs. Borden manages to defend herself and reach for the hatchet and they're struggling over it, there's a good chance that even if Lizzie prevails, she'll get cut in the process. And then what does she say when she raises the alarm, when the police come and she's got a big cut on her hand? How is she going to explain that? She doesn't cook. She doesn't have any responsibilities to use a knife or sharp knives in the kitchen. So it carried all kinds of risks. And Robinson may well have wanted the jury to think about all these things that I've raised. Robinson told the jury they needed to disregard the references that Moody had made in his opening statement about buying poison. He said, the judges ruled this was not admissible. They excluded it. It's not your job to wonder why. You are to dismiss it from your mind. You are not to consider it. You are duty-bound to act as if you never heard anything along those lines. He said that also applies to any references that Moody made about inquest testimony. Anything Lizzie may have said under oath has been excluded. You can't consider it. This was a little bit tricky. Some defense attorneys will just skate over it and not say anything because they don't want to remind the jurors. They'll let the judge take care of that when the judge instructs the jury at the very end of the case, after the closing arguments. But I think it was probably smart for Robinson to emphasize that point. Robinson also pointed out to the jury that even though the government was likely to argue there might have been an accomplice, that there was no evidence, absolutely none, that another person was involved in the murders, and that to think about it and to consider it would be to speculate, and it would not be based on any evidence that had been admitted. He sort of poked fun at the prosecution and how they were unable to identify the murder weapon. He said, well, at first it was the shingling hatchet, and then they found out that the blade was too long. So all of a sudden, they conveniently focused on the hoodoo hatchet, the handleless hatchet, and then they couldn't decide whether the main part of the handle was in the box or not in the box. First it was, then it wasn't. Watch it appear, disappear. It's like a magic, it's like a magic show. And he said, maybe the hatchet handle is flying around Fall River right now, and someday it'll land. And he just basically ridiculed the police on that, which they deserved, frankly. He emphasized that nobody saw blood, any blood, on Lizzie's dress, on any of her clothing, on her hair, her skin, her hands, nothing. That when she was lying down at one point on a sofa in the dining room, nobody saw any blood on her shoes, on her stockings, that there was absolutely no blood evidence, and that the doctors had all testified that whoever committed these murders would have been spattered with blood. How much blood was not entirely clear but it would have been virtually impossible for the murderer not to have gotten a fair amount of blood on his clothing and probably on his head, on his back, possibly on his back, because what's happening is you're pulling the murder weapon back quickly before you bring it down for another blow. And as you pull it out of the wound, there's blood on it. And as you sort of snap it back and then start forward again, blood is spraying all over the place. It's going up, it's going backwards. And then as you come forward again, it's flying off in that direction. He said, if she was involved in this, especially in Mr. Borden's murder, how did she manage to avoid getting any blood on herself, including on her clothing? 
they make a big deal out of the fact that she was home. Oh, she was in the house. Well, of course she was. It was her home. What? Where would you expect her to be? That's where I expect my wife and daughters to be. Unless they're out shopping for food or visiting friends or doing good deeds, of course they're home. That shouldn't be held against her. That's not something that is evidence of guilt. She's where she should be. Now, if she was somewhere she shouldn't have been, well, fair enough. But don't hold it against her that she was at home, which is the right place for her to be. He didn't dispute Bridget's claim that Lizzie was upstairs around 9.35 when Bridget was closing the windows. He didn't dispute that Lizzie was upstairs when Bridget let Mr. Borden back in. And here he lucked out because he didn't have to explain away the inquest testimony where Lizzie said, I was downstairs, I was upstairs, I was downstairs, I didn't see Bridget after she let my father in. He doesn't have to explain any of that away. He's got much more room to maneuver because he doesn't have to deal with that inquest testimony. And what he says is, just because she was upstairs at 9.35 and just because she was upstairs at 10.40 or 10.45 doesn't mean she was upstairs the rest of the time. Clearly, if she had been in her bedroom at the time that Mrs. Borden was murdered, was being murdered by somebody else, yeah, I'll concede she would have heard that, but she she wasn't. She was downstairs and the, the prosecution cannot prove otherwise. There's no evidence otherwise. He said the bedroom door to the guest bedroom probably would have been closed. He said the murderer would have kept it closed, would have closed it if at all possible before killing Mrs. Borden, certainly would have closed it as soon as the murder was finished. And then when the murderer was finally ready to leave after Bridget had gone up to rest and after Lizzie was headed out to the barn, there was no point in closing the door behind him. He's just going to leave it open, head downstairs, and either escape or kill Mr. Borden, whatever his plan was or whatever he happened to decide on the spot. But, of course, he would have had that door closed. Then he did something really interesting, which I would say bordered on almost on the unethical. I think it was a close call. And I think a lot of defense attorneys would have done the same thing that I'm about to describe. The biggest problem for him was the note. How do you explain the note? Obviously, he could explain it in different ways. He did some obvious things with regard to the note. He said it could have been part of a plot. It could have been a sinister thing that the murderer had written to try to lure Mrs. Borden out of the house. It just hadn't worked. The murderer had gone into the house thinking Mrs. Borden had already left, found her there. She hadn't left yet, and he had no choice basically but to kill her. That's one possibility. He said it's possible that the person that wrote the note was too shy to come forward Ooh, that's painful. That's a painful one. I mean, it's painful even to repeat it. That's pretty weak. Like he said, like some women don't like publicity. They don't like to be the center of attention. They don't feel comfortable at the prospect of having to testify. So that might be why whoever wrote the note didn't want to come forward. I won't bother to say anything more about that argument. He also actually said that some people don't pay attention to the news. And it's possible that the person who wrote the note just doesn't know that we've been looking for it for a year. Again, really weak. But one thing he said that I thought bordered on the unethical was Bridget also heard about the note directly from Mrs. Borden. Now, we know that isn't true. If Bridget's to be believed, she was really clear to the police and every time she testified that the only thing she knew about the note was what Lizzie had told her. She's very clear about that. She says, I didn't know anything about the note until after Mr. Borden came home. I heard Lizzie mention something about a note to him. Then around five minutes of 11, as I was headed up to rest, Lizzie said, if you go out, make sure to lock the doors. I'll be going out. And Mrs. Borden went out. Somebody was sick. She's not back yet. That's all I know. 
I don't know anything more about it. But what Robinson did was he took some testimony of Mrs. Churchill's and he distorted it. He twisted it. He gave it a meaning that was not honest. What happened was Mrs. Churchill in her testimony said that at some point, Bridget had told her there was a note. Bridget had said Mrs. Borden got a note. She hurried off. She didn't tell me where she was going. She normally does. Now, clearly what had happened was that at the time that Bridget told that to Mrs. Churchill, Bridget was under the belief that there really had been a note. She had no reason to doubt what Lizzie was telling her. I'm sure that later, within hours probably, but certainly within a few days, if not sooner, Bridget came to the belief that the note was a fake, that Lizzie's story was fake, that there'd never been a note, and that she came around to the same view that the police had, which is that this was just a lie to distract everybody's attention. But at the time, early on, when she first mentioned this to Mrs. Churchill, she was operating under the assumption that Lizzie was telling the truth. And all she was doing was relaying Lizzie's story. She didn't say to Mrs. Churchill, Mrs. Borden told me there was a note. But she said it in a way that in theory you could interpret to mean that. Mrs. Borden had a note. She hurried off. She didn't tell me where she was going. She normally does. That could certainly be interpreted on its face to mean Mrs. Borden told me this herself. But we know that isn't what Bridget was saying. We know Bridget was very clear that was not what she meant. And yet Robinson really hammers away at that point. And in fact, later in his argument, he goes, and remember, it's not just Lizzie who said Mrs. Borden had gotten the note. Bridget heard it as well. And I would never accuse Bridget of lying. So you can imagine that Knowlton was pretty contemptuous about that when he had his chance to respond. As for why they couldn't find a note, Robinson said Mrs. Borden may have burned it. He said the murderer, having dispatched Mrs. Borden, may have taken it back. Then he has to deal with the whole business of, I thought I heard Mrs. Borden come back in, won't you go look for her? And he came up with what I consider to be a actually an almost an ingenious explanation. If not ingenious, I would say a pretty a pretty good one. What he said was Before Mr. Borden had returned home, at some point Lizzie heard a noise that could have been the sound of a door closing. In fact, what it may have been was the sound of Mrs. Borden's body hitting the guest bedroom floor. Maybe. Or it was some other noise that sounded like a door closing. And that Lizzie had thought at that time, when she heard that noise, before Mr. Borden had returned, Lizzie thought, oh, that's probably Mrs. Borden coming back. That's probably her closing the door. But then after 10, 15, 20 minutes, there was no Mrs. Borden. There was no evidence that it was Mrs. Borden, that it appeared that Mrs. Borden probably hadn't come back. Lizzie dismissed it from her mind. Just like we do when we hear a loud noise in the house occasionally, and it's just a one-time noise, and we're not sure what it is, and we think it might be something getting blown over by the wind, or it might be something falling off the wall. We don't know. And then a few hours later, we find out what the cause was. Maybe something tipped over and banged onto the floor. And we say, oh, that was the cause of the noise. So that's really what he's saying. It wasn't until Bridget said to her, tell me where Mrs. Whitehead lives. I bet that's where Mrs. Borden is. I'll go down and find her. That's when Lizzie was finally reminded. That question, that suggestion for Bridget triggered in Lizzie's mind the memory of a loud noise a noise like a door closing that she had heard an hour or an hour and a half earlier or two hours earlier, whenever it was. And that's why she said, you know what? I think I heard her come in. Won't you go look for her? So I think that was about as good a way of explaining this as possible. And again, Lizzie totally lucks out because if her inquest testimony had been allowed into evidence, Robinson would have had to explain Lizzie's denial that she had ever said this. 
that would have been a much bigger problem for the defense because then Robinson would have had to say both Mrs. Churchill and Bridget were mistaken, that they had both misheard Lizzie, that Lizzie had never said, I thought I heard her come in. So this made his job much easier. He said that the government's description of the home as a tense, unhappy, miserable environment wasn't true. He said, I asked Bridget numerous times in numerous different ways whether she liked working there. She, she said, yes. I said, was it a pleasant place to live She said and work? She said, yes. I said, was there ever any quarreling? She said, no. Were there ever any hard words? No. Was there ever any evidence that she saw that there was hard feeling or dislike? No. How did Lizzie get along with Mrs. Borden? Oh, she was always civil to her. She always answered her when she spoke. Didn't the girls sometimes eat with their parents? Yes, sometimes. And isn't it a fact that the girls almost always got up late for breakfast, so of course they wouldn't sit at the same breakfast table with their parents? Yes, that's true. He said, and the environment is different from what the prosecutors are telling you. He talked about all the different descriptions that the witnesses had given about Lizzie's appearance in the aftermath of the murders. She looked dazed. She looked excited. She looked pale. She see, they were worried she was going to faint. He talked about how at the inquest, when asked whether she had seen Lizzie crying, Bridget had said, yes, when I came downstairs, Lizzie was crying or had been crying. He talked about Mrs. Holmes's testimony that on the morning of the funeral when Lizzie said goodbye to her father and had her little moment of closure that she cried at that time. He said a guilty person would have pointed the finger at other people and Lizzie adamantly, consistently refused. No, it wasn't somebody that worked for her father. No, it wasn't the farmhand. No, it wasn't Bridget. No, it wasn't Mr. Morse. Nobody else that the police suggested. No, it wasn't possible. And he said a guilty person would have jumped at the chance to get the police to look elsewhere. She spoke to the police every time they asked. On the day of the murders, they interviewed her eight times, six officers. Two of those officers spoke to her twice. She never refused. She allowed them access to the home. She never kept them out of the home. Whenever they wanted to search it, she said yes. As for the dress, as for Mrs. Churchill's testimony about the dress, he said she wasn't 100% sure. She couldn't say with 100% certainty that this was the dress that Lizzie was wearing, this pale blue dress with a diamond shape. She thought it was, but she wasn't going to say with 100% certainty. She may have confused it with a dress that Bridget was wearing. We know Bridget was wearing a pale colored dress. She may have confused it with a dress that some other woman was wearing. And he said, and if the prosecution wants to insist it was a pale color, use your common sense. Doesn't liquid show up more readily on pale cloth, on a soft or pale colored cloth? What's going to show up more readily? Blood on a pale blue dress or blood on a dark, dark blue dress? Use your common sense. The government wants to have it both ways. They want to say that this dress had blood on it, and then they also want to say it was a pale blue. If it was pale blue, you would have seen the blood. As for burning the dress, he said, she did it in the open. If she was doing this out of a guilty conscience or in order to destroy evidence, she would have done it in the morning before everybody got up, or she would have done it after everybody went to bed. Why burn it in front of her sister and Alice Russell? That makes no sense. He reminded the jury that the side door, the screen door, was open for more than an hour while Bridget was washing the windows outdoors. He said anybody could have come or gone through that side door. And he said, and for that matter, think about the front door. Normally, Lizzie would come down every morning on her way to the kitchen and pull back the bolt on the inside of the door and unlock the deadbolt. 
And normally, the only bolt that would be engaged on the front door would be the spring lock, which we know was defective, which people could circumvent by just pushing the door unless the door was shut really tight. And he said, I suspect what happened was Lizzie did the usual thing when she came down on the morning of August 4th. She pulled the bolt back, she unlocked the deadbolt, and that it was the murderer who came in through that front door by pushing it open because the spring lock wasn't engaged. And in order to buy himself some time, to give himself some freedom to roam around, to poke around the house, he was the one who bolted the door. It would have been very easy for him to get out of the house by just sliding the bolt back, opening the door, and leaving. But by bolting it on the inside, he was protecting himself. I know it sounds counterintuitive, but think about it. He said anybody could have gotten over that back fence and don't believe for a minute that somebody fleeing the murder scene would have been spotted getting over the fence. Look at Wixon. At 11.30 on the day of the murders, Wixon gets up, walks the length of the fence along the stringers, climbs over the barbed wire, gets down, and saunters over to the man who is sawing wood in Mr. Crow's stone yard and basically has to tap him on the shoulder to get his attention. If Wixon can do it, anybody can do it. He ends up by saying, this isn't consistent. This, these murders are not consistent with this woman from what you know about her, what we all know about her. No criminal history. A woman who has devoted many, many hours to volunteer work, teaching Sunday school, teaching English to immigrants, working on these different committees and societies for the church. She has a spotless reputation. In order to convict her, you have to believe one of two things. Either she's insane or she's a heartless fiend. You know she's not insane. There's no evidence. Nobody's claiming she's insane. She has no history of insanity. You've seen her in the courtroom. You've heard how she behaved after the murders. That's not the behavior of an insane person. And you know that she loved her father. You know that she cried at the funeral. You know that the only jewelry he wore was a gold ring she had given him years before. You know that she was devoted to him. And you know she has a spotless record and a spotless reputation. This doesn't fit. This just doesn't make sense. The idea that this woman, what we know about her, we know about her past, we know about the things she's done with her life, the idea that she would commit these crimes is simply inconceivable. It makes no sense at all. It's impossible. And that's basically how he ended. Okay. I think we have one more episode to go. We will do Knowlton. And then we will have the psychiatrist. And then it's Holmes. I hope you join me next time. And until then, take care. <laughs>